Greg Masters reporting at the SAP Healthcare Personalized Medicine Symposium in Palo Alto, California. And it is my honor to introduce you to Ewan Ashley, who's the Associate Professor of Medicine and Genetics at the Stanford School of Medicine. Now, you just just got off the stage with a rather impressive uh, uh, message around precision medicine, its applications in cardiology. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing at Stanford uh, in, in the genetics space. Yeah, well, th thanks for having me. It's really fun to be here today in a very exciting new area to talk about. Uh, in particular, uh, the work I do at Stanford, I'm a cardiologist and a geneticist, and I'm co-director of the Stanford uh, Clinical Genomics Service. So that is a service where we aim to take insight from the genome, which we can now sequence for around $1,000, and take it really to the bedside of our patients and really ask the question, what can the genome bring to our individual patients? And for which patients should we be sequencing their genomes and should we be sequencing all of them? Those are the sorts of questions that we've uh, started to, to approach. Uh, and it's, it's really, a, a, I think, a very exciting area. So we had an earlier presentation from Dr. Yu, a former ASCO president. Uh, people think naturally about oncology as an application for precision medicine. What's the angle in uh, cardiology? Well, I think that uh, really the, the low-hanging fruit uh, in terms of the application of genomics to medicine is really in, in rare disease, rare and, and genetic disease, and that includes cardiovascular disease. The center I run here at Stanford is a center for inherited cardiovascular disease, so diseases with long names like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, dilated cardiomyopathy, and long QT syndrome. These are diseases that you often hear about in the press when a, an athlete dies suddenly, for example. They're diseases that affect young people and can often be associated with sudden death. So those genetic diseases, I think, are the ones where genomics and, and the sequencing of the human genome has had the most immediate impact. But even there, those are diseases for which that we, we understand already their, their pathology. We understand what causes them. And often in half the case, maybe a little less, we can find a cause. But at the moment, we can find a cause by sending a test for maybe five genes that cost maybe $5,000 and might take two months to come back. We are simultaneously in a world where we can turn around a $1,000 genome in two days. And so this is how fast the technology has moved. It's absolutely stunning and beyond anything I think I've ever experienced in medicine. And, and it's truly transformative. So when we can do that, when instead of measuring five genes, we can measure all 20,000 genes, and, and when we can actually measure all the other information in between six billion base pairs of data uh, on a given patient, then I think we're talking about a really new world but a new world where we need new tools in order to really uh, make the difference. So I think that the rare disease and genetic disease, be it cardiovascular or otherwise, is really where genomics has had its impact today. And we are quite literally sending genome sequencing on patients on a daily and weekly basis from Stanford Hospital and other places around the world in order to help those patients with rare or genetic disease. I think the next thing is, is going to be cancer. And we heard a great uh, talk this morning from Peter Yu about the cancer link. And uh, really the idea there is, is precision medicine. And precision medicine is something the president talked about in his State of the Union address this year, forming a new initiative uh, and funding it where we would really start to think about medicine and think about disease differently. And in particular, what, we, what, we, what has previously been single diseases, we are now able to use a molecular microscope, the essential sequencing of the human genome, to, to realize that that's not one disease. Actually, that's multiple different diseases. And the, and the uh, example the president uh, pointed to was cystic fibrosis. 
And this is a disease where mutations in a particular channel that lets chloride ions, so salt and water, uh, maintenance for the body. And that's mutated, and so the channel doesn't work well. Patients often get intractable infections, especially in the lungs. And it, it turns out that when you know the mutations in the gene, you can divide cystic fibrosis into different categories. In fact, six different categories. Some where the channel reaches the surface of the cell, and some where it does not. Now, if you imagine a drug, and there is one, that only helps the channels that are at the surface of the, the cell, then those are the patients who need it. And if you gave the drug to all patients, half the patients would get no benefit, half the patients would get benefit. So the idea of precision medicine is targeting those subcategories of disease, using genomics to define the subcategories of disease, and then targeting them with much more precise therapy. And I think in oncology, we're going to see that too. And the example Dr. Yu mentioned this morning was of lung cancer, which we used to think of as one, and now we think of as multiple different diseases that need multiple different therapies. The president's uh, initiative in precision medicine has certainly moved the needle forward here. There's almost a frenzy of activity, and there's a sort of knee-jerk reaction that there's this polarity between traditional population health, thinking, and this emerging space of precision medicine. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think they're completely compatible. In fact, they're incredibly complementary to the point that we can do one well only with the help of the other. Uh, and we often talk, actually, at Stanford in, in our biomedical data science initiative about thinking of things at different scales, and in particular, it's population to personal. So we specifically call out the complementarity of those two fields to help each other. And it's easy to see how. Genomics is a great example. If you have a new patient in the clinic, and this is, this is absolutely real, we do this every week, and we get a genetic test report result back, and there's a new finding. So most genetic variation is rare. And we have a variant. We have to decide, is that variant causing the disease or not? Well, one of the single most powerful ways we have of knowing that that variant is likely to cause that disease is to go look in the population. If we go find it in 20% of the population, it's pretty unlikely that's the variant causing this rare disease. Otherwise, 20% of the population would have it. Uh, whereas if it's never been seen, let's say we have 100,000 people, it's never been seen in that population, the chances that that is causing the disease definitely rise. And so this is a way in which, on a daily basis in the clinic, we're using population science to help the individual patient. And I think it's a, it's really a, it's a new world. And these two groups have to talk to each other. We have to be able to get the data from the population and apply it to the patient. And then each individual patient has more and more data. We're able to measure more and more things, on, on data, whether it's genomics, whether it's measuring the proteins, proteomics, whether it's using wearable devices to monitor patients. If we start to learn much more deeply about single individuals and then do that at a population scale, we will begin to learn about, about populations in a way that we can't currently do because we're di diving much deeper. Is there a risk here of taking our eye off the ball of some of the social determinants of health and just look at this molecular level um, pathogenesis at the molecular and mutation level? That's a great question. And so, again, I mentioned I'm a, I'm a cardiologist, and the answer in cardiology is diet and exercise. And so I often get asked this question. You do all these fancy things and measure patients' genome, and at the end of the day, you just tell everybody that they should diet and exercise. And uh, there's an element of truth in that. You know, I think those are two of the most powerful things we have. Lifestyle intervention is incredibly powerful. But technology and, and data science can help there, too. I think that we know, for example, that people vastly overestimate the amount that they exercise. Well, you put a watch on them and you can show them exactly how much they exercise and that can also be shared with their doctor. 
you can put a watch on them that can alert them to the fact that they haven't moved in the last hour. And, they, and that's as simple as get up and walk around. We know that the metabolism of your muscles changes if you get up and walk around uh, after an hour of sitting. So there's some very simple things. I mean, I'm extremely uh, optimistic about the future for health promotion and, and disease prevention uh, by the use of this sort of technology. And that's also why I think the extension of precision medicine to the idea of precision health is really important. That's something that we talk about at Stanford a lot. The idea of getting to the patient before they're ever a patient. I mean, I think a healthcare system should be exactly that. It should be about your health, not about your disease. We should be there to, to help pick up the pieces if you need a surgeon, if you, if you need an operation, if you need cancer, chemotherapy. We should be there for that. But we should be engaging you way sooner so that we can help you prevent getting disease in the first place. And, and as a cardiologist, I, I know the power of physical activity and fitness and diet and lifestyle. But I know that we're also not as good as we should be at talking to patients about it. And that patients and uh, just people who are not yet patients uh, are not as good as they should be. And I'm one of those two uh, at doing those things, that even though they know they should be doing them. So I'm really excited by how technology can help us do people to do the things that they actually want to do anyway. So we're all at risk here. Uh, does this innovation seem to be locked down in a handful of academic centers uh, around the country and perhaps across the world? Or when will this reach out into mainstream medicine? Well, I think that things begin in, often in academic medical centers because we are encouraged to push the boundaries, to try things for an N of one, for one person. Uh, I'm fond of saying, you know, you can never do two of something before you've done one. And all that, uh, and that's just supposed to mean at some point somebody has to decide to try it once. And, and only by doing that, you, you learn a huge amount by doing it once. You can apply that to the time you do it twice. By the time you've done it 10 times, you've finessed the, the thing remarkably. And I think that that's what academic medical centers are for. If, if this technology was locked down in, in there, that would be terrible. That would be increasing health disparity, and we do not want to do that. What we want to do is learn how to use it effectively and responsibly in the academic healthcare system, and then spread it to the world. One of the great things, we, we have a study uh, currently called My Heart Counts, which uses mobile phone technology to monitor people's physical activity, give them feedback about it. Uh, and even a fitness test is built into the app. Uh, and it's free, and it's a study that now has 50,000 people in it, 50,000 people signed up. And, but we would like that to be a million people. Uh, and, and the great news about that study is that the, there are 700 million iPhones around the world, and, and the iPhones represent even the minority of the overall cell phone population owning group in the world. And so we are really excited. Uh, there are countries where they, aren't, there isn't running water, and yet they have a cell phone tower. And so the other uh, important thing is that cardiovascular disease is actually the leading cause of death in, around the world. It used to be that infectious disease was the most common cause of death in the developing world. But the slightly sad thing in a way, it's, but though it is a triumph, is that, that we've done so well at treating uh, infectious disease, we can do better, but we've done well that now those developing countries are starting to get the diseases of the developed world. And so cardiovascular disease is a problem throughout the world. And so I'm very excited that we can take uh, these, this kind of technology not just to the, in the academic medical centers, not just even beyond to the rest of the United States or the rest of the developed world, but really into countries uh, where uh, the, the cardiovascular disease is a new thing for them and where we can encourage them also to be active, to eat well, and to prevent disease. And where do you see the patient's role in this evolution, particularly at the or, uh, orphan or uh, rare disease level? 
Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting. I mean, we we are definitely moving to a world absolutely appropriately where the patient is much more the the center of of the universe. It's not about the doctor or the healthcare system. It's really about the patient. And so I'm excited because the technology allows the patient to have their information in their hands and share it with who they want to. That's one of the most important things I think of this new world. But but it's also a question of uh, within rare disease to speak to your question. We can get knowledge uh, just by sharing data. So measurement is one thing. We have great data now that we can measure. But if you imagine a case, and this is, this is a real example where somebody had, uh, their son had a, a, a difficult brain uh, diagnosis and neurodevelopmental disorder, and the genome was sequenced, and they found a genetic variant that looked as if may, maybe it could cause this disease, but that gene had never been associated with those symptoms before. In fact, there hadn't been a patient with those symptoms before that had been found. And this particular father went onto the internet, had a blog, wrote about it. It became a viral story. It was spread around the world and within days had found another case of someone with exactly those symptoms and signs. After sequencing that patient's genome, they found the same gene was connected. So now we have a new gene for a new disease. And now currently I think there are 30 or 40 people around the world with that condition. Just imagine if we could do that times a million. If we could do that for every patient with rare disease anywhere, if, if a new gene or a new series of collection of symptoms pops up in some other continent somewhere, and you have a patient with exactly those things, th- those systems should talk to each other. This happens. It happens in the technology sector. It happens in banking. It happens in, you know, around the world in other sectors. It just doesn't yet happen in medicine. And uh, I mean, I'm really excited at what we can do to break down some of those barriers, make connections, and essentially treat our patients better. The power of big data, social networks, and uh, patients' motivation to seek uh, help for themselves. Absolutely. You know, I think it all comes together. So, last question. Um, you mentioned we're, um, as we witness this shift from provider-centric to consumer-centric health care, and you mentioned this evolution from sick care to health system, where do you see U.S. healthcare, health systems, hospital systems, physician organizations five, five to seven years down the road? Well, this, I think where I would like to see them, and there's, then there's how much progress can you actually make. Uh, and, but I, I'm, I'm really optimistic about making these connections and about the, the power being in the hands of, of the consumer, the participant. I think that that's where the real, uh, that's what will really shift the needle here. Uh, because I think we really have to be able to share more and that uh, I think we're increasingly seeing it. Uh, there are examples like CancerLink is, is a great example where practices will come together and agree to put information, rich information, in one place uh, in a very consistent format. I think there's other centers. Our, our Undiagnosed Diseases Network has a system for sharing unusual symptoms and signs, uh, and that's something that could be globally tapped into. I mean, right now, uh, Google is still one of our best ways of finding a collection of unusual things, whether it's the recipe for the things you're left with in your fridge or uh, important symptoms and signs in a patient who's sitting in front of you. I think we should be able to do better than that because Google can only search what's there and it can only search what's in the public domain. And currently, most medical records are not in the public domain. So there's a big challenge ahead, but but I'm optimistic. I think uh, five to ten years down the road, we'll be in a very different place. And I think uh, there'll be many, many more examples of these uh, sharing rich data sets to really make the right connections, find new treatments for our patients. Pretty everybody knows about Stanford. Tell us a little bit about the activities that, uh, that are underway there that you're involved with. 
Well, we're very excited about the, what data science and this new uh, science uh, of, of data and computation uh, can bring to biomedicine. And in particular, we have formed an initiative, the Biomedical Data Science Initiative, which uh, starts in the School of Medicine and really reaches out to the rest of the university. We're very unusual in having the Department of Engineering and really one of the most famous departments of engineering anywhere in the world uh, just across campus. I mean, it is literally across the road from the medical school. And I think that that's a very unusual thing. And we have two hospitals right there, actually two brand new hospitals being built. We're very interested to apply what is routine in technology companies into those hospitals and into the healthcare system. And so the Biomedical Data Science Initiative seeks to, to reach out to Stanford and bring engineers that normally spend their time thinking about uh, driverless cars or how elevators run or how to make traffic run better uh, and bring those people uh, to think about questions of biology and medicine. Think about how to solve that disease better, you know, and, and to apply the sort of deep learning approaches that are so successful and we're used to carrying around really available from our mobile phone in, in our pocket. We would like that mobile phone to also start to tell us about the patient as we walk past their room in the hospital. And so the initiative reaches out within Stanford, but also even beyond Stanford to, to Silicon Valley, where so much of this technology was developed. I mean, maybe we trained many of those people, but a lot of them are now out there in technology companies uh, working and developing these kinds of algorithms. And what we want to do is be able to have a two-way communication. Collaborations such as this one with SAP are a great example of that. Uh, but we have collaborations, obviously, with, with many other technology companies. And that, I think, is, is the absolute symbiotic relationship between Stanford and, and the Valley. I think it, it's really a very unique setting that we're in here. And the Biomedical Data Science Initiative is, is really designed to make the most of that, bring those technologies into Stanford, bring it to the, the patients at Stanford Hospital, and then spread it around the world. And I think that's really exciting. There you have it. Dr. Ashley, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.